first half of John's Gospel retells stories and signs that take place over three years of Jesus' ministry in the first century. The second half of the Gospel, more or less, focuses on Jesus' last week, and a large portion of that is set on the night that he was betrayed. In this part of the spiritual gospel, we will explore what scholars have named the Farewell Discourse. It is a large block of teaching set on the night before the crucifixion. In the story, it sort of functions as Jesus' last lecture to his disciples. He tries to prepare them for what's to come, he gives them some final instructions, and he encourages them to wait and trust. And even though this teaching is firmly embedded in a remote culture in the distant past, many of its themes remain relevant for us today. Join us as we consider the Farewell Discourse. So over the last few weeks, we have been looking specifically at a few chapters in the Gospel of John. It's called the the Farewell Discourse from John 14 through John 17. And as I said, we haven't really made uh, too much headway in that study as of yet. And tonight, we're not really going to make much headway either as we're just hunkering down and looking at three verses, particularly the verses that I thought I would cover last week uh, that once I got into it, it, it really felt like it was two sermons as opposed to, to just one. So I wanted to, to stop where we were last week and then save this little talk for its own separate week. This evening, we'll be looking at these verses in John chapter 14. I'll begin reading in verse 12. It says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. The word of God for the people of God. So last week we looked in particular at the first half of this uh, little section here where Jesus says very truly or amen, amen, uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And I kind of opened up at least some of myself to you last week in, in how I was processing that. As a typical Christian school kid, the product of conservative Christianity, the way that this text was often read in my own experience was it was setting up believers to do the things that Jesus was doing, and that did not limit us from doing the miracles that Jesus was doing, the healings, the, uh, the miraculous works that were happening in his lifetime. Some people would have anticipated that this comes to fruition, especially where he says, not only are you going to do these works that I do, but you're going to do greater works than what I'm doing. The hinge for Jesus in this context was, because I'm going to the Father, I'm leaving, and that's a good thing for you because because when I leave, I will give to you my spirit, the spirit that will live inside of you, that will motivate you, that will encourage you, that will give you illumination and understanding. And last week we looked at maybe how we could push against that typical reading of setting us up to believe that we will do great demonstrations of of God's power and miracles and all these sorts of things, and instead look at this text as something that is setting up the disciples and later generations, us included, to do greater works than what Jesus has done because the story will be completed. 
Jesus is setting his followers up to say, it's gonna be different for you because the timing is different for you. The story has come to a completion. You now will know what salvation looks like. You now will know about my death and my resurrection. You now will know about the spirit that is granted to you that will never leave you, that will never forsake you. You now will be able to invite people into this story. It's not just limited to Israel anymore. It's, it's opened up to everyone. And for an original audience, that was something that was, that was palpable, something that was important for them to gravitate to and hold on to. What Jesus is now opening up is, is, is just massive in its scope and in its importance. Gail R. O'Day says, the disciples' works, which will be done after these events of the hour, namely Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension, are therefore greater because they will reveal the completed story of the word made flesh and hence the fullness of God's love. Their works thus are not greater than Jesus' works because of anything intrinsic to the disciples themselves, but because they belong to the new, fancy word, <laughs> new eschatological age ushered in by Jesus' hour. Mainly, everything has changed now because of what Jesus has done. Because of his death and his resurrection, what he was saying to the disciples is, everything will be completely different. And what you are able to do and how you are able to minister, it will look different than what I have been able to do and how I have been able to minister. And sometimes I think that in our own lives, we minimize that because what we want to do is, like Paul, we want to walk through the city gates and wherever our shadow falls, we can just heal people. And as I'm walking through the aisle right now, Hunter is healed and Nathan is healed and everyone is healed because the power is just coming through me. Does that make sense? We want that to be the case, but I don't know about you. In my own experience, Jonathan, I'm not so sure if my shadow has necessarily healed anyone. Can I get an amen? Sometimes I think that my very presence is a healing balm to some people, you know, as I sit and I reflect and I cast out some of my pearls of wisdom, but that's different. That's something totally, totally different. No, you don't like that, okay. It's different because we now know the story and we can invite people in and Jesus was saying, I can't even begin to express to you the, the, the works that you'll be able to do and how great it will be. And when I leave, it's gonna be so good for you. And his disciples, they couldn't really, they couldn't hold on to that. They didn't have any concept of that in the moment. And then he goes into this other set of teaching that is equally as difficult, really. He says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All through this, this context, there's this linking of the Father and the Son. I will do whatever you ask in my name. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. And a lot of times we're gonna camp out here and just focus on the fact that Jesus says he'll do whatever we ask and then we begin to pray and expect God to answer those requests in the affirmative. God, I really wanna go to Harvard. Let it be so. And we just think that that might be the case. God, I really wanna date so-and-so. Let it be so. God, I really want more money in my life. Let it be so. Whatever it is that you want and God becomes almost like that, that, um, what is that? 
slot machine and you just say whatever it is that you want and because this text says if you ask for anything that he will do it, then we begin to set ourselves up and our prayer lives up for this and usually those prayers become self-centered, self-focused because we want the things that we want. I'm gonna pause on that for a moment because I want us to spend some time looking at this clause here where it says, if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Tonight, I at least want us to focus on maybe what this means. And again, I'm gonna break some hearts tonight. Instead of answering all of the questions that you might have about this text, what I want to do is sort of redirect you over here for a moment and and allow us to to follow this pursuit of thinking. Um, Rob Bell has this line, he's a pastor, used to be a pastor in Michigan, he now just charges people to come and float in the ocean with him and surf. You, you can go to surf with Rob Bell for only like $9,000 uh, a day, which is nice. Go, go do that. But he says, sometimes the questions that we ask, they're just boring questions. And maybe this one here about how if it says, if in my name you ask for me for anything, I will do it. The question that we want is, Why doesn't that happen? Or how can we make this happen? And I wanna say maybe that's the wrong question and let's just go over in this direction and pursue this line of thought for a moment. Now this line here, if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is important and this becomes something that Jesus says for the first time in the farewell discourse. In John 14 through 16 and into 17, he begins to uh, redirect people's focus about when you pray, you're not praying in the name of the Father, you're not praying in the name of God, you're praying in my name. He says this in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. John 16, very truly I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name, Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. These are themes that Jesus is now giving to his disciples the night before his death. He's saying, guys, begin to pray. And when you pray, pray in my name. And when you ask for these things in my name, it will happen. It will come to pass. And if you do this, your joy will be complete. Now, some people would say that when they're focusing on the name of the person in that prayer context, there's different um, historical background to this particular moment when you begin to pray in the name of someone. In fact, for some folks, there is a magical context. In this time period, there were certain uh, magician types of people. There were uh, texts that were incantations where you could just pray these certain things in the way that they were outlined, hoping to get a certain desired result. And there were folks that were attempting to discern what the name was in order for their prayers to be answered. And if they could only understand what the name was, then everything would be open to them. We see this in the book of Acts. In chapter 19, it says that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Side note, this is usually some of the stuff that we think Jesus was setting us up for, the greater things. If you just take my handkerchief, then you'll be healed. 
I want to, again, redirect us and ask a different question, but Paul is doing these crazy miracles, and then it says that some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They found this name that was working for Paul. They take this name and they apply it to their own ministries so that when they see people sick or hurting, or in this case, possessed by an evil spirit, they would take the name that has worked and use it in their own ministry. But as this unfolds in this context, some crazy things begin to happen. It says, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit, the one that they were attempting to cast out, talks back to these sons saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but I don't know you guys. Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, that's a fun little phrase there, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I don't know what happened to their clothes. In the leaping on of the, of the man possessed with the evil spirit, clothes were going. The, the seven sons of Sceva had had enough. They say, I know Paul, I know Jesus, I don't know you. Clothes fall off and they run out of town. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. In this ancient context, people were attempting to discern what a name with power was, and they begin to use that in some of their prayers. Now, clearly, when Jesus says, if you'll pray in my name, he's not giving them the secret passcode to craziness. He's not saying, all right, you guys have been with me a while now. I'm gonna let you in on something. If you just pray and say, in Jesus' name, you'll get whatever you want. It's beautiful. This is not what Jesus is is saying, but some people in this time, they thought about prayer in this sort of way. There's also a Greek and Roman uh, context where some people, again, thought of prayer as this list of rituals and incantations. And if you just go through the list, saying things appropriately, accurately, in the right manner and the right order, and if you do the, the, the symbols and the routines and you have the, the motions that go along with it, then your prayers would be answered. And there's some uh, Greek and Roman texts that, that lead us to see that uh, in certain contexts, if you just mispronounce a syllable, then they thought that this prayer would not work even if you had the right name because something in the order and the structure was messed up. Now, clearly, Jesus, again, is not doing this. He's not saying, listen, here, just, just read through this thing, and if you do that, then everything will be granted to you. There's other um, contextual notes that some people would pray on the merits of, their, of the namesake that they were invoking. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, you've got some folks that would say, um, God, as you have done to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or God, as you have done to your servant David. They'd be taking these people of prominence that God has answered their prayers in the past and then using them in their own prayers in hopes of garnering some favor with the God that they are praying to. And again, some people might think that Jesus is giving them that little bit, like, hey, when you pray, just say my name. I got you. It's almost like you're 
this is a terrible example, but it's just coming to me, so I'm gonna roll with it. Like you're going to that concert that you wanna go to and you go up there and, and you're hoping that your friend put you on the guest list. You say, hey, I'm with so-and-so. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. Terrible analogy. Because in the background, you would have had to talk to your friend and your friend would have had to say, I'm gonna put you on the list. And then you go and you try to, we're just gonna move on, okay? There's, there's prayers where you're attempting to use the name of someone to get you into the good graces of the person that you are talking to, in this case, talking to God. Or you could be looking at prayer in the name of one's broker. This is uh, Keener's term here, one who is, is almost granting like, like a, a stamp or a signet, um, someone like a, a prince who goes into a new context and says, hey, my dad is so-and-so, or pulls the old don't you know who I am sort of thing. I'm with this guy. And then they hope that all things will be granted to them. Some folks would say praying in this context could evoke something like this, where you're attempting to use someone who has power and significance and that you are related to them in some way and some folks would see there, there's like connections there with what Jesus is doing, but clearly uh, this is, is something different in this particular context. Jesus is not giving them a magical uh, name to evoke or a certain prayer practice. He's not also giving them the name or the code word. It's something different. But in this context as well, you have people that are praying and using a name as an invocation of reputation. Like in the Old Testament, when people pray and they say, God, listen, you can't kill these people because that's not your character. That's not what you promised. You should live up to what it is that you have said you would do. They're invoking the reputation of that person in order for their prayers to be answered. But all of these kind of pale uh, in, in comparison to what Jesus is probably really attempting to do, which again, we're gonna depend on Craig Keener here. He says, most likely when Jesus tells his disciples to ask for something in his name, what that is doing is it's signifying asking as his representative while being about his business, just as Jesus came in the Father's name. So when Jesus says, when you pray, pray in my name as if you are my representative here and now. Disciples, I am granting you with power and authority to in invoke my name because you are the people that will be my hands and feet right here and right now. It involves prayer in keeping with his character and Indeed, it, 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 it is something that where this, the prayer is in union with him. Such prayer naturally implied desiring the sort of thing that Jesus would desire. Hence, praying as best as one knows according to God's will. When you are praying in the name of Jesus, what he's telling his disciples to do is to be about the things that he is about to be praying for the things that move Jesus and have been exemplified in Jesus's life and ministry. He's not saying, if you just say my name, then you can get whatever you want. He's not saying you get into Harvard. He's not even saying that your family member that you're praying for will be healed. He's saying instead that when we pray in the name of Jesus, what we're doing is we are um, demonstrating that we want to be about the things that he is about, the sort of things that Jesus desires. And when we pray, we pray according to God's will as best as we know.
N.T. Wright says something similar. He says, praying in Jesus' name, it means that as we get to know who Jesus is, so we find ourselves drawn into his life and love and sense of purpose. We are becoming conformed into the image of Jesus and our prayers will echo the things that Jesus is about. We will begin to see what needs doing, what we should be aiming at within our sphere of possibilities and what resources we need to do it. When we ask, it will be in Jesus' name and to his glory and through that to the glory of the Father himself. But we have a problem with this because when we talk about the church being about what Jesus is about, if you compare across the scope of churches, even just in America, there is a separation with regard to what it is that we think Jesus is about. Really, if you polled the audience, we would all say different things. Jesus is about love. Jesus is about justice. Jesus is about inclusion. Jesus is about exclusion. Jesus is about, we have all these different things that we believe Jesus is about, which is why you have so much division within the church. And the problem is, if Jesus is saying, when you evoke my name in prayer, I want it to be uh, focused on the things that I'm about. We've got different churches that seem to be at diametrical odds with one another, claiming that Jesus is in the midst, that Jesus is guiding and moving and compelling them to be about the things that they are about. I'm gonna show you a series of pictures to demonstrate what I mean here. Because we all have opinions on these things. And they become the dividing line between how we believe Jesus is operating and how we as Christians should be enacting his work here and now. But we can't agree on what measures need to take place. If we're talking about the crisis at the border, we're talking about refugees and, and how and if they should be allowed to be in this country and how we should care for them in the name of Jesus. If we're talking about racial division within our country, we've got churches on completely separate sides. And maybe as some of these images are flashing on the screen, you're thinking like, oh, well, I mean, this, oh, come in. There's other layers to this discussion. It can't just be a simple yes or no. There's got to be some kind of conversation that takes place here. We have these, these things within the church that force us to make decisions here and now, and all they do is divide us. So if we're supposed to ask as Jesus' representative while being about his business, or if we're praying in Jesus' name, which naturally implies desiring the sort of thing that Jesus would desire, there's a problem because we seemingly have no idea what Jesus wants from us. And that is, that is exemplified in the radical, deeply rooted division amongst the people of God that can't look at a slideshow like this without being viscerally moved to anger about something. And as we have that reaction and response, we say things like, well, clearly the proper Jesus move here is X. But if you say that out loud on Facebook, you will receive the wrath 
of half of your friends list, unless you have very carefully curated your friends list, in which case you will only have an echo chamber of people that say things just like you. And I can say that that's really nice sometimes. It's so good to be patted on the back, but it's not real life. And it's certainly not real life in the kingdom of God. And like, yes, we can, we can talk about for a moment, like, well, what does it mean about Jesus doing these things? But let's, let's take it off to the side for a second here and say, what are we doing as the church to figure out what Jesus is about as his representatives who are supposed to be praying in his name? In, an, in another way of, of phrasing this, who or what do our prayers represent? Who or what are we invoking? Are we invoking only our self-centeredness, the things that we want to happen? Are we invoking only our own sense of justice and not really listening to the other side? Have we already written them off and understand that when we do that, who have we written off a lot of times? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm not here to say, hear me, that we should occupy the middle and just hold this side and this side and try to bring them together. Because usually when you do that, it's just a bunch of nonsense. I firmly believe that you can take up residence on one side or the other and be completely convicted in your conclusions, but that doesn't entitle you to say, I have it figured out and there's nothing more for me to learn and nothing more for me to say to those people over there who might think differently than you do. Think for a moment, who or what do your prayers represent? The pictures on the screen that moved you, the little refugees that are sitting there hurt and alone and broken, are you praying for them? The border crisis that we care about so much are we praying about it? Are we doing anything about it? Or do we say, oh, we're good. We wrote that check like nine months ago. So we're fine. We don't need to do much more about it. LGBTQ inclusion, fine, we're good. Climate, it's fine, it's a hoax, doesn't matter, who cares? Like you might have your political ideologies about that, but then can you go one step farther and say, I'm still entrusted to be a steward of this environment and how am I living? And how does that show that I am in cahoots with Jesus? You know, we have these sorts of moments where the prayers that we pray, they can be a mirror to show us the things that we care about. And for some of you in the room, you don't even have the data from which to pull any sample because you stopped praying months ago or years ago because you don't think it works and you have no faith in it and you've just kind of washed away and now we're just in this moment of being enraged by this stuff and maybe not even do anything about it. We're just angry and ticked at all of the things. Who or what do our prayers represent? Now, I do want to, to focus here on this for a moment because in, in the prayer it says, or in, in the text it says, if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. N.T. Wright doesn't want to soften that. And it's not as though we just jump on board with our main man N.T. Wright on all things, but he says it's in the text 
It's, 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 ask, it's, it's compelling us to ask for these big things and trusting that God will do that. But I want us to focus on one thing. And I'm gonna take this in, in two separate directions. I hope that you guys can track my, my line of thinking here. When Wright says, praying in Jesus' name then means that as we get to know who Jesus is, so we find ourselves drawn into his life and love and sense of purpose, then he says, we will begin to see what needs doing. Not just so that we can ask God to intervene, but perhaps when we begin to see what needs doing, through our prayerful reflection and the spirit moving in us that maybe, just maybe, we can do something about it as well as the emissaries of God himself. We will begin to see what needs doing, what we should be aiming at within our sphere of possibilities. I don't want that to limit us, but I don't think it's completely uh, illogical for us to say that there's a scope in which we can do something about the things that we are uh, wanting to engage. The things on the screen, you might be thinking, well, I'm just one person with no real political power or anything. What, but what can we do within our sphere of possibilities and what resources do we need to do it? And at least as I'm reading this, it seems like there's, there's, a, there's a push for us to remember through our prayerful reflection that it's not just asking and walking away. It's asking, being conformed in the image of Jesus to be about what he's about and then doing something about the things that we are being moved to pray about. Does that make sense? I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask in my name, I hope this isn't an unfair reading in, but perhaps it could be if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it through you. We have the spirit of the living God indwelling in us to be agents of hope and love and change and restoration and reconciliation. It cannot be just we sit and wait for the interventionist God to intervene as we do next to nothing. Perhaps what we see here is this being compelled to become participants in the work that God is doing. I don't want that to get lost on us because there's people in the room that probably don't feel like, I, I don't have anything to offer. You do. Within your sphere of possibilities, the things that you can contribute to the lives of those around you is incalculable. The way that you can make positive change in the name of Jesus should not be underestimated. Perhaps there is this push that we are to be used in this ongoing process. Now, I know if you're a thoughtful person, you might be thinking, well, here's Josh again, rereading the scripture to get God off the hook for all the things that we're wanting God to do. Now, I do think that in this way, we are looking at prayer as a reorientation. 
You know, there's some scholars that say, when we pray, we don't pray for God to change the situation or the world. We pray for God to change us so that we can become agents of change in the world. And for a a lot of my life, even right now, there's something about that that's like, "Mm, mm, yes, but also, can you guys commiserate with some of that? Because for most of us, we grew up in a a situation where it's not just about praying so that you can be changed. It's about praying to ask God to do the things that we can't do on our own so that God can step in and meet those needs. So there's one sense in which prayer is this reorientation. We, We become more aware of who we are and God's work in the world and how we can participate in that. But the the thing that I want us to hold on to is there's also this piece throughout the Bible where prayer is intercession, where prayer is trusting that the interventionist God will intervene. There are certain things that we cannot do. When our loved ones are in the hospital rooms, we pray for miracles to take place. I do think it's important for us to to identify some of those miracles in the fact that we live in this westernized country with good medicine, where we have doctors who are smart, where we have equipment that can help them to see things and treat things. But there's moments in which that's not good enough for healing to take place. And I'm not ready to cash in my chips and say the only thing to be gained from prayer is I'm changed and the doctors can do their good work. I still think that there's a, there's a bit of, a, a large bit of truth that God is still an interventionist God. That God still does works here and now. Some people would even say that we have uh, We have completely limited that to expecting God to show up in these grand moments when God has been there the entire time. I'm hopeful that we don't just limit this to, I pray to change me, even though we notice how important that is, that we can become hands and feet on the ground. But I do hope that we can still come back to this idea that when we pray in the name of Jesus, that there are things that will be done that we might not be able to explain. For the people in the room that are trying to get a handle on what does it mean to pray and trust, I do not have answers for you. For the people in the room that want to know what it looks like, here's what I can hope. I can hope that it looks like a community of people who love you, that are surrounding you and supporting you, that are praying for God to continue to work, and in the meantime, they are the tangible hands and feet on the ground that are inviting you in and loving you in the midst of whatever it is that you're struggling through. But I can't take all of the experiences and all of the realities of this world and make sense of them with how God is intervening or not intervening at any given moment. I do not know. But in my coffee talks with people as we sit across from one another, one of the things that I go back to, and I know that for the science folks in the room, this is not gonna be um, helpful. There is a bit about the Christian faith that comes down to radical trust in a good and loving God. And as a rational, thoughtful, wannabe academic, 
I wish I had something more that we could hang our hat on. But in the meantime, I think that we're okay walking towards our Savior in a humble act of trust and hope that when we pray, it's not just changing us, even though that's important, but the words that we are saying are heard, that there is a response to them, and that our interventionist God continues to intervene in ways that we cannot predict or sometimes explain. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. If you would like more information about the Restoration Project, we encourage you to visit our website at restoresby.org or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby, or spend some more time listening to past episodes of the podcast. If you have appreciated this or other episodes and would like to support the work that we do in Salisbury, Maryland, we invite you to review the podcast on iTunes. We aren't sure how it works, but we think people will be able to find us more easily online if you give us five stars. If that's not enough and you want to send us some money too, I mean, who are we to stand in the way? You can find ways to partner with us at give.restoresby.org. 